0: Welcome to the podcast, Amazing Tales from Off and On, Connecticut's Beaten Path, and I'm your host, Mike Allen. Well, there's a number of people who believe that not enough has been made out of one of the battles that occurred during the Revolutionary War in Fairfield County, and specifically here we'd be talking about the Battle of Ridgefield. You may not know that more than two dozen British and Patriot soldiers died, including the famous Patriot General David Worcester and it involved one of the most famous names from that time period, Benedict Arnold. My guest to talk about all of this is somebody who has studied the battle and other Revolutionary War confrontations in great detail. Keith Jones III is not only the founding president of the Ridgefield Historical Society, but he's the author of the book, Farmers Against the Crown. And now, Benedict Arnold and the Revolutionary War Battle of Ridgefield. To understand the true significance of the Battle of Ridgefield, you've got to put it in the proper context. And for that, we got to go back to 1777, four days in late April of 1777, when the British conducted their furthest inland attack in the then colony of Connecticut, They marched on Danbury, neutralizing it as a supply base for the Patriot forces during the Revolutionary War. And on the way back, well, they met organized resistance in the town of Ridgefield in what we today know as the Battle of Ridgefield. Now, in North America, the British were running everything under a commander, William Howe. He had just taken Manhattan from George Washington, and Howe had plans to eliminate this growing rebellion amongst the Patriots. Of course, we all know how that worked out. There was one significant step in this plan, and that was to eliminate the supply depot in Danbury. Now, to do this successfully, because he knew he'd have to go pretty far inland to do it, he wanted to create a couple of military diversions to confuse the Patriot forces. So, a month before the raid on Danbury in March, he sent the British fleet up to Peekskill, New York, up the Hudson River, and attacked. Then shortly before the Danbury raid in April, he sent another 12 ships up the Hudson, this time docking off of Dobbs Ferry. Well, there were 1,200 Patriot forces in that area and they stayed in place because they thought another attack was imminent. So those 1,200 forces didn't come in to help out Danbury until it was too late. Well, with all these maneuvers working, Howe then sent General William Tryon and 1,700 troops to what is today Fairfield County to march in Linda Danbury. They were met by 300 Loyalist troops on the shore, so they had a force of 2,000 soldiers to undertake this four-day raid. Well, their fleet parked at Campo Beach, which is off the coast of present-day Westport. They marched up through Weston, Reading, and Bethel, and got to Danbury, where they burned about 20% of the houses that were standing, 19 houses and 23 stores that had supplies for the Patriot forces. Now, as they were setting all these fires to the supplies, reports were starting to come in quite strongly that there were militia from Lower County, New Haven, New Milford, and even New York State that were gathering and starting to get ready to attack. In fact, General David Worcester, Benedict Arnold, and General Gold Silliman were known to be just a few miles away in Bethel and closing in. Well, the British were fearing a rather large confrontation, so they chose to return to their boats off Campo Beach by, instead of going back down the way they came up, going down through Ridgefield and taking the road back down to Campo Beach that way. Now, the problem was Worcester, Arnold, and Sullivan in Bethel couldn't be absolutely sure that the British were going to go through Ridgefield. For all they knew, they were going to keep marching west and go over to Dobbs Ferry and meet up with the boats that were docked offshore there. Well, the battle did end up in Ridgefield, and everybody guessed right, and it essentially pitted the wits of Benedict Arnold against British General William Erskine. Keith Jones III was the first president of the Ridgefield Historical Society. He helped oversee the pooling of money back in the 1990s to save and move one of the oldest houses in town. It was threatened with demolition. The Scott House, built in 1714, is now today the Ridgefield Historical Society. Well, his research resulted in several books on Ridgefield, the pertinent one for this discussion being Farmers Against the Crown where Keith set out to establish the true nature of the Battle of Ridgefield versus its usual status as just a series of skirmishes that were part of that four-day raid on Danbury. As you looked at Ridgefield back in 1777, what was it like in terms of Tory versus Patriots?
1: Well, you know, Ridgefield, like some of the other southwestern Connecticut towns, namely Reading and Newtown, had a substantial loyalist base. In fact, in wake of Lexington and Concord, the freemen of Ridgefield came together to determine what should they do, and they voted to remain loyal to the crown. They had another meeting after Bunker Hill and voted again to stay with the crown. But what happened was bands of freemen threw in with Washington's army they came home with tales of, of horror and valor, and so gradually these returnees from Washington's army combined with the General Assembly to take a strong arm. Ridgefield, by December of 1775, took another vote, and at that time the freemen were in their majority, and they clamped on hard. They identified Tories, they intercepted their mail, they boycotted their businesses, they uh, fined him and they threw him in jail. And so all of those measures meant that by the time Tyron arrived with hopes of a loyalist support, it was too late. And the loyalists remaining, while they were still maybe a quarter of Ridgefield, they knew that the army would pass through. But next day, their, their patriot neighbors would still be there in force and there would be retribution. So they stayed home.
0: Interesting. From an outside perspective, it certainly looks like the case could be made that Tryon's forces, because of the decoy ships set up off of Dobbs Ferry, were maybe going to head back someplace through Ridgebury and then out into New York State and not go down Main Street and Ridgefield. Ridgefield almost seems like a town that was beset upon Almost in spite of itself, it wasn't as if it was actively engaging to say, "Okay, after they're done with Danbury, we're going to stay. It just happened. So discuss that part of it.
1: It happened because uh, Tryon, by about one o'clock in the morning, he picked up a lot of intelligence that militia companies were coming from all over Connecticut, uh, even New York, and that Benedict Arnold uh, was in his rear. The British command knew about Arnold for years. In fact, the Lord Germain, who oversaw all the North American uh, activities, had pointed out earlier, this guy Arnold looks like the most capable and active of the Continentals. So were word that he was in, the, in their rear meant that an alternative route back would probably be the best situation. That alternative, by going towards Ridgefield, he also threw a feint towards the Hudson so that Arnold and Wooster weren't quite sure that it was Ridgefield, or was he going to then bolt toward the Hudson? They still thought the dozen ships in the Hudson had troops, and that maybe those troops would pour ashore if, in fact, Tryon headed toward the Hudson.
0: Okay, so Tryon finishes what he's doing in Danbury, burning 19 houses and 23 stores, he leaves town, and he heads over toward Ridgebury, past what's today Danbury Airport. In Bethel, just a few miles away, you've got General David Worcester, Benedict Arnold, and Gold Sullivan, And Worcester comes around from behind to attack the British, while Benedict Arnold and Sullivan go into downtown Ridgefield, figuring that's where he's headed. Let's start with Worcester. What happened to him when he came down out of the woods to meet the British?
1: Well, see, Wooster knew that he had pretty much raw troops under his control, and they had never worked together before. They were, you know, from all over the place. And so he couldn't do anything really sophisticated, so he wisely chose to just come out of the woods at an opportune time, and that was the British had pretty much finished their lunch and were on the move again. And so the rear guard, which consisted of a lot of wagons and oxen and et cetera, supplies they'd they'd stolen, was vulnerable. And so he swooped in out of the woods. He came in with a complete element of surprise, but he he took, I guess, maybe a dozen to 20 British and uh, then immediately disappeared back into the woods before the full British army could deal with him. At that point, the British army headed straight for Ridgefield, who did not bother with Wooster. He followed them, I guess, for about an hour. And then they laid a trap for him. They saw there was a bend in the road with a hill that with Wooster coming down the Ridgebury road in the wake of the army, he couldn't see which was beyond that hill. And so they posted three artillery pieces to surprise Wooster when he came around the bend. Wooster saw that uh, he could take one of the cannon or maybe more and so boldly spirited up his men to take the cannon. Uh, Well, he was felled uh, almost immediately. He then found another horse and tried again. But this time, the British rearguard were prime loaded and ready. And, you know, the story has been pretty heavily romanticized that Wooster gave up his life. But that's what happens. These romantic episodes like Wooster get recorded. But what don't get recorded, Wooster was not the only officer urging the men forward. Benjamin Hinman, well, he was hit too. Also going down was Captain Thaddeus Crane, who headed a New York militia component. The leadership to try and take the British in the rear wasn't just Wooster. He was supported by some of the others. But his demise was glorious because he mounted a second horse and was felled again and was carried to the Flat Rock, and reporters, I guess, picked up on it. And and from there, he was transported back to the very same house in Danbury, the home of Loyalist Nehemiah Dibble, that uh, General Tyron had spent the night before. So a little bit of irony there, for sure. And that's where he lingered for, I think, six days before he died.
0: Okay, so Benedict Arnold and Silliman head to downtown Ridgefield, right on Main Street, Route 35, right by what's today the Kisagmo condominiums or apartments, and they decide to set up a defensive posture there to try and block the British. Let's talk about what happened there.
1: Uh, so early in the morning of the, the 27th, they burned the remainder of the Danbury stores and marched toward Ridgefield. And Arnold got there maybe an hour, maybe two hours at best beforehand, and so very hastily, he threw up the barricade there by Casagno, which you are familiar with. Now, while that was hasty, the site was magnificently sighted in order for a smaller force to hold off a larger army. You can still see the footprint of a potential Bunker Hill kind of situation, where if the Patriots dug in, the British were forced to charge exposed uphill, The casualty rate at Bunker Hill was 42%. You put a New Englander with a rifle behind a barricade and give him a few volleys, and the damage could be horrendous. Where the barricade was, to the left, there was a series of steep, rocky ledges. uh, And at the bottom of those ledges was a marshy area. To the right of the barricade, was a slope that fell off, oh, probably uh, 100 yards or more to a little river that curled around with some stone walls that gave the Patriot militia and protection to get those valleys off. And so that whole defensive line extended maybe about 400 yards from end to end. Arnold posted about 150 men at each end to cover his flanks and then filled in the, the line with another... About 300 or, or so men that he had on hand, some Continentals, some militias, some locals that just picked up a gun. And so uh, with an hour to two, two hours max, uh, he set up a pretty strong defensive establishment.
0: What happened with Benedict Arnold and his horse?
1: There is newspaper reporting of a horse at the site, as well as uh, anecdotal uh, information about a horse with nine bullet holes found in it shortly after by eyewitnesses on the site. So there's pretty good provenance that the horse actually went down. Now, there's some dispute about the circumstances. There are stories that say that Arnold was running away and was rallying his troops in a stand. There are others that say that, no, what had happened was these provincials had actually climbed those ledges and had broken in the Patriot line and had a good line of fire on Arnold. And that Arnold was, in fact, leading men forward to try and stop them from breaking the line down entirely. But at that point in time, the entire Patriot line that 400-yard defense had been broken, both on the flanks and in the center. So, whether Arnold was rushing forward or just rallying the retreat is not clear. But it is pretty clear that the horse was shot and that Arnold was pinned to his horse, that either provincials or British tried to bayonet him and that he gunned down one of them. And then there are accounts that he then ran away, that he ran into the swamp or that he grabbed another horse and sped down Main Street, which is the most likely account, since there's a specific eyewitness, a militiaman, who said he saw it.
0: Okay. Now, Benedict Arnold then sort of lived to fight another day and took some troops down to Campo. So uh, tell that side of the story.
1: First of all, nobody invited Arnold. This was the Fairfield County Militia, headed by General Silliman, Arnold just picked up news of it, and Arnold saw opportunity because Arnold was in New Haven pouting. And he was pouting for two reasons. Uh, One, he had proposed marriage to a 16 year old beauty in Boston who was the daughter of a loyalist, and her mom said no way. And two, because Congress had passed him over for promotion to major general, and Wooster was also passed over. And so both of them had motivation to redeem themselves by responding. My guess is that those two were oil and water, and any chance that Arnold had to have an independent command, he would make it. There was no potential backup to Ridgefield. Once that line gave way, there was no place he could make a stand, and his whole line was in disarray. So it's not clear who went with him, to the Saugatuck Bridge. But it would appear that about half of the troops under his command somehow assembled with him at Saugatuck. And so at that bridge, uh, he set up what he thought was going to be an ambush. General Erskine determined that there was a ford across the river before he got to the bridge. And so what he did was throw a feint toward Arnold by having one regiment look as though he was headed his way. While the rest of them upstream cross the river, so there you have Benedict Arnold with a well-laid plan, and yet the enemies on the other side of the river kind of waving as they're as they're going by.
0: When you look at Ridgefield today, and knowing such things as there have been at least 22 cannonballs found and all sorts of uh, ammunition, and one of those cannonballs famously you know lodged in the Keeler Tavern uh, house and and all that, how does that? sort of make you feel about the importance of Ridgefield?
1: The Battle of Ridgefield was a real a Revolutionary War battle. There were more British there than at Lexington, Concord, or Trenton or Princeton, You know, all of which are in every high school 101 history book as a Revolutionary War battle. It just wasn't an American victory. There was a true order of battle by Arnold and Silliman. It wasn't just a bunch of militiamen showing up and firing uh, away. And that trail of cannonballs suggests the battle was not just at the barricade. That battle continued after the barricade broke. It wasn't an organized battle, but that trail of cannonballs shows that the British were firing at something. And that continued all the way down to the
0: Keeler Tavern. To the best of your knowledge, what were the casualties at this battle? The
1: British overinflated the American casualties substantially. General Howe, though, submitted to London a formal report, but he didn't break them out by skirmish. He just did for the entire four days. And those casualties amounted to 29 killed, 117 wounded, and 29 missing. For the Americans, it's very fuzzy because there was no formal after-action report done. The most reputable tally of casualties. They took every single engagement and, and reported what they thought were the casualties. And they ended up saying that 20 killed and 75 wounded.
0: Now, much has been made of the fact that Tryon was trying something new, going so far deep into Connecticut, and as you said earlier, expecting loyalist support, which maybe wasn't there. Some would say that the British never went that far deep into Connecticut again.
1: That's true. They never went back into Connecticut because the the militia clearly was there in force, and the loyalists, whatever number they were there, were just not going to turn out. And it was pretty clear that these farmers in the militia, who while they ran, they still were there most of the time, and it was them, their sheer numbers that I think persuaded General Howe that it's not worth going inland again.
0: wraps up this episode of Amazing Tales from Off and On, Connecticut's Beaten Path. I really want to thank Keith Jones III for sharing his incredible insights on the Battle of Ridgefield. He's about to update his 20-year-old book, Farmers Against the Crown. And doing the research, he learned one thing that took place at Campo Beach. Benedict Arnold, once again, had his horse shot out from under him at that unsuccessful Campo standoff. Also, in a few episodes, you're going to hear a great follow-up to this story, the tale of the four skeletons uncovered fairly recently on the battlefield itself. Trust me, you won't want to miss that one. Well, if you like the show, make sure you subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts, and that way you'll be notified when the next one is coming. Also, I do presentations on the topics I discuss here on Amazing Tales, either in person or on Zoom. I'd be happy to discuss an appearance with your group, and if you're interested, just drop me a line at AmazingTalesCT at gmail.com. That's AmazingTalesCT at gmail.com. Amazing Tales from Off and On, Connecticut's Beaten Path is a production of True North Associates, LLC. This is Mike Allen. Be safe, and please stay healthy.